0: Bits and Pretzels inspire you. You will figure it out. This is clearly the place to be.
1: Servus, everyone. I'm Britta Vedling, Editor-in-Chief of Bits and Pretzels. Welcome to a new episode of our Bits and Pretzels podcast. And a very special welcome to our hundreds of new listeners who signed up over the last two weeks, specifically from the US and the UK. Thank you so much for listening. Today, I'm talking with London-based Brent Hoberman, one of the most influential entrepreneurs and investors in European tech. Brent is the co-founder and executive chairman of Founders Forum, an invite-only networking conference for top global disruptors. He launched Founders Factory, a global tech startup accelerator, and UK-based First Minute Capital, a unicorn-founder-backed seed fund with a 100 million global reach. He also co-founded the first-ever European unicorn, the travel platform LastMinute.com, over 20 years ago, and sold it just seven years later for over $1 billion. Today, Brent shares with us his thoughts on essential steps for founders to survive in COVID-19 times where to get the money from, and why this is the best time to grow your startup.
0: You should understand that you should be feeling very optimistic, broadly. Um, You should be seeing that there is this massive movement to technology adoption, and you should be smart enough to work out how to seize that opportunity yourself.
1: Hello, Brent. Thanks for coming on the Bits & Presses podcast.
0: Great. Thank you for asking me.
1: Obviously, um, every founder and investor is now interested in how to look at the COVID-19 crisis. So how did you yourself look at the situation? Did you postpone investments? Uh, what What's your advice for founders right now?
0: Whenever there is a great disruption, um, as there is now and obviously that's a tragic disruption for many people but um, if you're in technology and in startups you are very lucky and you should be able to move quickly and find opportunities now it's a cliche already that um, we're seeing decades worth of online of movement into the online space over the last few months so there are many sectors um, where it's absolutely very exciting Um and we are still investing heavily through First Minute Capital, our venture fund, and through Founders Factory. And I'm also investing as an angel.
1: So, with Founders Factory, uh, a tech incubator and accelerator in London, you are backing dozens of early stage startups with cash and also with expertise. How is the situation specifically for these young companies?
0: Yeah, so we've backed over 150 startups through Founders Factory, where they get not just the support of um, our large and expert team, but also of corporates, our corporate investors, the likes of Aviva and Johnson & Johnson and L'Oreal um, and the Guardian Media right. Group. So mm-hmm. um, what's the situation for them now is that, you know, like every startup, if they're in travel, it's it's very hard. If they're in um, health tech or ed tech, um, this is their moment. If they're in direct to consumer, actually, this is their moment. So, um, if they're in collaborative software tools, et cetera, et cetera. So, there are lots of you know founders who are closing rounds all the time. Um, there's also, of course, government support. Huge amount of government support for startups in Germany, France, and in the UK. The Future Fund uh, was launched this week. Um, so, there is a huge amount of um, Support that.
1: So obviously, for companies who are in the later stage, they have more cash, uh, longer runway. Uh, what's like the specific situation for for younger startups?
0: For earlier uh-huh. startups, look. It, again, I don't think it it's so much as to what stage they're at, as to what mm-hmm. sector they're in. Um, okay. But obviously, if you're an early stage startup and you have no relationships with venture capitalists um, and you are heavily reliant on angel funding. Um, and the angels aren't getting support to do um, later stage, to, to do sort of, sort of government support, really, at least not in the UK, um, it's harder for them because they're not getting the tax breaks if they're matched by the future fund, right. um, then it can be harder. And we have seen data that angel you know, earlier stage, seed stage, state, seed stage investing over the last few months is down about 80%. Um, so right. there is there is definitely, and I'd lo- I'd love to see the European numbers too, um, but it's clearly much harder. It is harder to raise for most. If you want a generalisation, it's harder to raise for most super early stage founders. So what do they have to do? Either they have to obviously cut costs, lengthen their runway, um, mm-hmm. or they have to persuade people that they are in a massive growth sector now, or some or. Or if they're in something deep tech or very IP-based, um, there are lots of government funds. And in the UK, for example, in Germany and France have similar systems, similar schemes. But in the UK, mm-hmm. you have Innovate UK, which is grants and loans for deep IP-based technology companies. And that's £550 million. And one, one of the companies I've recently invested in in France, just emailed me yesterday, they've just got a significant grant from um, a BPI in Paris. So, um, I think there are lots of different options. Equally, in the UK, and again, I'm sure you have something in Germany, there are the bounce-back loans. So, if you're really small, um, you can apply for a £50,000 loan. You know, So, all of these things do help. And obviously, there are what we call furlough schemes in the UK, where the government will pay for your employees for a few months, pay 80% of their salary up to a monthly limit of £2,500.
1: What's like the DNA... That makes a company survive, or succeed, or even, as you also mentioned, like grow in, in this crisis in this very tough economic situation.
0: There's some debate in the industry how founder centric one should be, but mm-hmm. I am, you know, very much in the school that the founder sets the tone for the company, and you know the and and, and so that's so I think it's it's very much about can the founder keep. Um, iterating, innovating enough? Can he persuade his team to stay motivated? Can he persuade investors that he can see through this crisis and Mm -hmm. possibly even benefit from it? So I think Mm -hmm. so much depends on the entrepreneur.
1: How can I make sure to create or probably to pivot my business and to make use of this crisis or to even Thrive in this crisis?
0: Yeah. Well, look. I think it, it, it depends again very much on, on on these sector issues, right? So, look, um, if you are in a very physical space, which physical business, which most tech companies won't be, then mm-hmm. I, I think you just then have to have a very full pivot, you know, um, mm-hmm. and 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 really change the direction you're heading in. Um, however, if you are in a, you know, but I think you can just work out where are the customers now, where's the money now, who is it who wants to save money? You know, often tech startups can help people save money. Uh, mm-hmm. Who can you partner with to make yourself um, bigger, you know, m- much more quickly? So I think there are lots of people who maybe traditionally uh, wouldn't have looked at partnering with your type of organization, but right. if you can right. convince them that you can save them money and time uh, and maybe enable them. Not to have so many fixed costs themselves, then I think that's a, a great opportunity. If you can help them with their efficiency, um, that's that's also another right. huge huge opportunity right now.
1: Looking into the UK, where founders are already kind of in a tough situation uh, with Brexit, uh, not to mention their the government, which is also like acting a little weird. What's like the situation for UK startups? Right now, with with COVID, uh, what do you tell your community there, the startups that you work with every day?
0: Look, I think I think if you're an entrepreneur in the space, you should be feeling very, very lucky um, not to be, to be honest, running a restaurant or a hotel or what, one of those <laughs> those businesses that are that are deeply structurally challenged now and for we don't know for how long. So, I mm-hmm. think firstly, you should understand that. You should be feeling very optimistic, broadly. Um, you should be seeing that there is this massive movement to technology adoption. And right. you should be smart enough to work out how to seize that opportunity yourself. Uh, so, right. many of the companies I'm seeing are saying, you know, I have a couple of ed tech companies approached me yesterday, some of them that were invested in, and they're like, look, w- we can't believe it. We're suddenly profitable. Um, we've grown, you know, 100% year on year. And we weren't, we weren't thinking of it, but now we're going to raise, you know, 25, 50 million. So I think also what I'm seeing is a lot of the companies I'm involved in have managed to raise huge amounts of money. So Onfido, right. I was one of the first investors in Onfido, an identity verification company. Uh-huh. They closed yeah. 100 million euros recently. I was mm-hmm. one of the first investors in Allen.eu. They play a French health insurance disruptor. They closed an additional 50 million. I think their total funds raised are now 140 million right. within, within mm-hmm. three or four years. Um, ALKIN in France, O W K-I-N, which is a artificial intelligence for drug discovery and for sharing um, data across uh, drug, drug platforms. Um, they've raised 25 million since this all happened. So um, we announced this morning one of our portfolio companies through First Minute Capital. Alkin, O W K, sorry, not Alkin, sorry, um, New Vector, a mm-hmm. decentralized messaging platform that's actually also used um by some of the German state, I believe. Um, automatic, which is WordPress, the power 36% of the whole web, have invested in them. So mm. rounds are getting done. Uh, mm-hmm. you just um but I think the challenge is as you as we start with, if you're super early stage, you haven't proven very much. Um then there's a squeeze and then you have to hope that there is some sort of government money that's going to get you a longer runway so you can right. prove enough to get a seed fund or a series a fund interested.
1: how do i know whether i should continue the business model that i'm working on or like pivot my company around uh, right now how do i find do how do i find that out uh, as a founder
0: yeah. And I think that is one of the eternal questions. I think, you know, Richard Branson used to say that, you know, if you've shut down, it's because you sort of lacked tenacity and that it, it was just, you didn't, you didn't wait for your time. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I sort of don't think that's always right. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I sort of sold off my com, One of the ones I did after last right. uh, because I felt that the business model we were doing wasn't quite right. And the team wasn't uh, gelling, to be honest, enough. And I thought Mm -hmm. that the DNA of the team would be very hard to fix. So Mm -hmm. it's one of the reasons why, luckily, we spun out Made.com. So the pivot there was actually really, we had half of Made.com at the beginning. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I did that saying, we shouldn't try and do that with this existing team. We should do it totally fresh. So Mm -hmm. we did it with Ning Li. Um, And that turned out to be a very lucky or smart move, depending on what what you think. Um, So, you know, those sorts of of pivots do happen. But I think to my mind, the main thing of when you should pivot is when you can't attract or retain the world's best talent. So if you're finding that talent is leaving you um, or you can't attract it, then you've probably got to pivot to something more convincing and exciting and with bigger growth potential.
1: I was talking to the founder of Get Your Guide, Johannes Reck, last week, and he mentioned that he's using this crisis now, you know, that you know now that we are in a time where all the airplanes are down on the ground to actually repair some of the stuff, make the product even better. Is this like an approach more entrepreneurs should take, like really you know, use the time where there's no business to create even better products?
0: Well, look, Johannes, I I think Johannes is a brilliant entrepreneur. And again, I was one of his first investors. Um, uh, I think Johannes has one luxury that many founders here won't be, won't have, Mm -hmm. which is he has a, he has raised a huge amount of capital. Right. So he can weather the storm and use that capital and the team he's got to mm-hmm. build even, you know, as you say, to build even better, faster, slicker, more efficient right. products. So of course he right. should, of course he should do that. But mm-hmm. some people here will say, well, that's all very well for him, but I have to have revenue or I have to fire everyone. Right. You know, so right. I think that's, that's So I think it's, it's a wonderful approach for those who can afford to do it, but we have to be recognizing the fact that some people can't do it.
1: So I think your career is a perfect example of somebody who had like many good ideas and also built like great and big businesses um, out of these ideas. Like in this time uh, of crisis, uh, lockdown, economic difficulties, uh, how do I find the right ideas as a founder? And, you know, what specifically do I have to take into consideration when I want to take these ideas to into a business?
0: Yeah, well, there are lots of things, obviously. I mean, the first thing everyone will say is, you know, find that pain point that you can solve and something that you think you can solve better than other people. Um, Find something you are super passionate about so that you will be one of the best leaders in that space. Um, But also, I think it's quite exciting to look at where technologies are going and where the intersection of technologies are going. So if you can find... Multiple technology trends. Uh, so, one example of a company that I chair and co-founded is called Kara Curry. Um, it's robotics for the food industry. So mm-hmm. that's a combination of multiple trends. It's a combination of a few things. One, um, uh, robots robotics are getting to be so much more efficient um, mm-hmm. that and and cost effective and um, versatile that using them for food becomes realistic. You've also got artificial intelligence which means that the robots can be much smarter and adaptable. Then nice. you've got the fact that labor costs are rising. Uh, so you're, you're, so to replace um, low-skilled workers with robots is actually a, a it's a good moment in time to do that. So when you combine nice. all those trends, you've got that you, you've got a pain point uh, that restaurant economics are getting squeezed. Um, and you have an opportunity to get an exciting team and to attract world-class talent because you can easily, I think, convince people that you're doing something that is new, that has a huge addressable market, that's exciting. Um, so I think you want to be able to put all those things together in one package when you think of, uh, launching a new, new business.
1: You mentioned that there are like some companies who have a lot of financials in the background. And I think that's also true for some companies who are moving into the areas you just talked about, like the technologies that are like attractive right now or the business mm-hmm. models that are attractive right now. You mentioned robots. A delivery would be another thing that's kind of booming. Um, and there are like some rumors in the market about how Uber is interested in Grubhub and, you know, all this all about how all this uh, delivery market is come is coming into a consolidation. How can I make sure that with my idea as an entrepreneur, I'm not running into a situation where like a big tech company like like an Amazon or an Uber or a, any other big company is like kind of taking my business model and you know it's integrating it in, into its own service and therefore I don't have any business anymore.
0: Yeah, I think there are more and more examples, actually, of companies where you sort of look back and you say, 10 years ago, would you not have said Google or Amazon or whatever would have done this? Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, the the startup has still managed through its agility and focus uh, to build a, a huge business. I mean, so I think the question, you know, could Google do this? You know, almost any company you look at, you could say, yeah, of course they could. But are they going to? Probably not. Mm -hmm. I mean, in in one of our cases, you know, you look at made.com, which is selling furniture online, and you'd say, well, surely that's Amazon. And then you look over the States and you see Wayfair, which has a $15 billion market cap selling furniture online. So you you can see uh, that these large companies don't tread everywhere. Equally Ocado in, in the UK, which has a sort of, I think about a 14 billion pound market cap right now. Which was doing, which is doing, you know, automated fulfillment for groceries. Right. Uh, you could have once again very much said, Amazon. Surely that's Amazon's business. Now they own Whole Foods, and they're super efficient. Surely they're going to kill them. But we're seeing no traction on that. Partly because you've also got, whenever you have a big giant, you also have an alliance of any any enemy of theirs is right. a friend of yours. Mm-hmm. So you can partner. So. For example, as soon as Amazon bought Whole Foods, what happened is actually, you you could think at first that would be a terrible thing for Ocado, but actually, it became a brilliant thing for Ocado because every supermarket globally said, oh my God, Amazon's going into my turf, now I Mm -hmm. need to fight, Um, how can I fight? And and therefore, it was to do a strategic licensing deal with Ocado.
1: That's an interesting point. Coming back to like the entrepreneurial experience, um, do you feel that the pitch deck is getting more important now that there isn't a chance to meet personally uh, due to COVID?
0: That's funny. I I mean, it it, it depends on what stage of it here, I will say. You know, I I tend to do much more super early stage investing mm-hmm. when actually I think the pitch deck is only to me a guideline of how – logical does this entrepreneur think so the pitch deck is a guide to some of these core questions but i think much more important when you're doing super early stage is the, your assessment and judgment on the founder mm-hmm. uh, what what are the reasons they're doing this why are they the right person and then can they attract and retain and build the right team so right. and then what credibility signals have they already done Have they already persuaded amazing people to be on their board, advisory board, on their team? Have they already done some distribution deals? Have they already um, got some wireframes that they can show you that they understand how products are built? Um, Mm -hmm. And then I think what in an age, to go back to your question, when you can't actually see a founder, what is super important will be the references. And I spoke to one uh, venture capitalist this morning who said that he had done 23 references on a founder that he wasn't able to meet. So he was going to invest, but he did twenty-three mm-hmm. references. So
1: this is like you need more references right now that you can meet personally.
0: Yeah, I think if you can't meet personally, it makes a lot of sense to to mm-hmm. dig much deeper into references to really speak to people who've worked for that person to understand what it's like to understand if people are going to jump from other companies to work to work for them. Um, right, and I, I I do think the challenge we've have found is feeling the energy for somebody over a video call uh, (laughs) versus in person, and and that's a lot harder.
1: You said before that before the crisis that entrepreneurs in Europe do have to work 10x extra hard to compete with competitors uh, overseas. Is COVID making that worse for European founders?
0: Well, I don't think it's, no, I I don't think, I I think what I was talking there was about how it's relatively harder. So if you have a huge addressable home market like China, India, or the US, uh, where there are no barriers, I mean, we really do not have a European single digital market yet. There is a Mm -hmm. project to do it, but it doesn't exist currently. Mm -hmm. So it means that entrepreneurs who, who want to expand across Europe have a lot of friction in in each country that they go into to be able to do that. Um, And if you're in America, once you have something that works in one market, it's a lot in one city, it's a lot easier to expand it nationally. Um, I don't think COVID changes that relatively. Um, And actually, I still think for many businesses, COVID actually makes it easier. And the other thing that we're seeing in some of our businesses where COVID makes it a lot easier is that where you are challenging a large incumbent, the incumbent will have a much bigger legacy challenge. I'm including probably offline assets and Mm -hmm. less ability to work remotely. So startups should be able to adapt to remote work much more easily than uh, the incumbents. So I think there are many reasons why actually COVID makes it easier for a tech startup to take market share.
1: Even in this difficult time, we want to take a virtual beer garden break since uh, this podcast comes from Bits and Pretzels, which is based in Munich. Uh, So what I want to do with you now is move over to a virtual beer garden bench uh, to have a stain of beer uh, and to talk more like personal stuff right now. So let's move over uh, to a virtual beer garden bench together and say cheers. Prost. (laughs) Okay. You were born into an entrepreneurial family, and you grew up in South Africa. How was that like?
0: Um, well, I grew up only in South Africa for the first five years. And then uh, my father went to MIT, so we moved to Boston for a year, and nice. then to New York for five years, and then to London, and then to Paris, and then to the south of France, and then all over the place. But, um, and you also lived in London up, and fundamentally, in Munich, right? I became Anglicized at age 10. And later on, I studied French and German literature at Oxford and went for for two various years off. I spent three months in Munich um, working at the Bankhouse Aufheuser on Marienplatz in banking. I Uh I decided that banking wasn't for me from that experience. And then I worked in Berlin for a day with Zixt. Um, I thought I was going to the business development department, (laughs) but they then wanted me to drive cars and... I'm not very good at driving cars, so I didn't last long there, and I ended up spending time and, in the library learning stuff and having lots of German friends and learning German that way.
1: Do you speak any German still?
0: Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, I've forgotten. I, I used to do full meetings and speeches when, for lastminute.com when we were in Germany, but I have okay. to say now it's much more passive than active German because I don't use it very much because everyone in Germany speaks such good English.
1: Okay. Uh, your father already invested pension funds uh, into venture capital funds. Did he teach you anything about entrepreneurship and investing that you are still using today?
0: Yeah, no, I still talk to my father a, a lot about um, about the, the, both entrepreneurship and, and venture investing. So, yes, and I even did an internship in New York when I was much younger at a venture capital company called Sprout. Uh, so, um, I absolutely do talked to my father a a lot about about that and I was lucky to have I think in my bit of my DNA some of the American meritocratic uh, approach and Mm -hmm. their ethics about you know just hard work and um, sort of dynamism I think so I I think it, it, it was great to have some of that American culture and take that to Europe.
1: Can you remember the situation where you decided you wanted to become an entrepreneur or you wanted to become an investor?
0: Yeah. No, what happened is, I think what really struck me growing up is that my grandfather had one photo shop in South Africa called True Earths, and he grew it into 650 shops across Africa and the UK. And I just saw how much he loved doing what he did every day. So mm-hmm. that just made me think, gosh, you know, I, I really think that having your own business, being an entrepreneur is an amazing thing to do. So I would constantly try and force myself to think of ideas um, ever since I was probably about 13 of businesses that I would try and run. And I mm-hmm. did various things at school, you know, not that mega, but things like having a, you know, pirate radio station when I was at Eton. It was illegal, but I, I had that. And then more importantly <laughs> at Oxford. I entered the first ever university business plan competition. I came second. I always say that the person who came first, I'm still convinced their father wrote their business plan. Mine didn't write mine. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, you know, and, and then in, in, in my first job as a strategy consultant, I actually got fired from it for being, they say, a bit of a prima donna, but I would say for trying to be a bit more entrepreneurial. So I worked right. on some entrepreneurial business plans there. And uh, they didn't love that.
1: (laughs) And you're obviously famous for starting last minute, uh, taking it to an IPO, uh, and also in in a situation uh, that kind of symbolized the rise and fall of of the dot-com bubble. Uh, Was there anything that you learned um, about dealing with uncertainties, with a crisis that could help other founders in the situation right now?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, look, it, 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 it's a good question. We had a business that went public in March 2000. It was the day the Nasdaq peaked. It hadn't seen. It didn't get back to that peak for a very long time afterwards. And then the dot com bubble burst. And for those that don't know, last Wintercom's right. com share price went down ninety five percent. And you right. know, dealing with a team, we were, uh, you know, soon to be well over a thousand people. Um, at that point and keeping them motivated when there was a lot of cynicism outside externally. So I think Mm. one thing is how Mm. you deal with external cynicism and people who just want you to fail. And I think you just have to persuade your team that you are the lucky one who can see the future, um, even though uh, and and that you are going to have that joy, um, a little bit of schadenfreude, I'm afraid, of seeing those people who Right. you know, wanted your, to see your downfall, you were going to prove them wrong and show that you did have the right approach. Um, the other thing was just simply that even while there were lots of cynics about us, we were growing at 100% year on year for the first five years with the organic. We grew much faster because we bought companies as well, but even just the organic part right. of our business. So just focusing mm-hmm. the team on the fact that what the service we were providing was something that customers saw um has really exciting and delightful. So I think some of it is just the vision that you get your employees excited about. For us, it was that customer feedback. We would have customer feedback sent to the team, you know, daily, uh, mm. so they could A, adapt and change things that weren't great, but also see how much good we were doing for our customers. So I think that sort of thing was was very motivating, and it was it was also just showing that we sort of understood the future, understood the power of this new technology where others didn't. And I think all of that was, was quite motivating.
1: What kind of, you know, understanding the future, I think that's what many entrepreneurs are trying to do. And, you know, everybody is basically trying to figure out how the new normal will look like, right? When we at some point come back to the office, start working again. What's your perspective there? How do you think about this new normal? How will this look like?
0: Well, I think the biggest debate we're having at the moment, and, you know, we're, we're very lucky, we, we didn't, we were thinking about making some big investments in real estate and we, we hadn't yet. So mm-hmm. we're quite lucky that okay. we can therefore think hard about what does the future of real estate and the future of the office look like. Um, yeah. I think, to be honest, we are, like many people, having a big debate about, we're running a big survey right now with people and, you know, early indications of people are saying, yeah, they don't want offices, they want to stay working from home for at least three days a week. Mm. Um partly the the challenge then is how do you take out the the noise and the the mistakes people are saying in that you know is it the weather's Mm -hmm. been brilliant here in london after over the last six months unusually so so is it because Mm -hmm. it's the newness and people are like saying well i can still be outside and it's beautiful and um and is it that it's early days and people you know they don't have options of a social life outside right Mm -hmm. now because we're still in a Mm long version of lockdown so are all of these factors external but i think clearly you know, you, the genie of remote work is not going to be put back in the bottle. It has been unlocked. So, yeah. yes, I still do yeah, believe yeah. there will be a lot more remote work, and I think everybody says that. I think what's been really clear is that this happened at a time when the technology was ready for it, um, when enough people had good internet yeah. connections and there were enough good collaboration tools. Um, but yeah. it's very hard to know what's the sort of spontaneity and serendipity and companionship are. Uh, And what are we missing on that? And how long will people – will it take till people really, really miss that? So, I think the other bits of big change, obviously, retail, physical stores, what's going to happen to them is the other big thing, and education technology and health tech. So, we've discussed it a bit. Education technology is going to have a massive boom, clearly, and change the way, you know, even schools are run, I I believe, and obviously – health tech will change the way right. we see our doctors and the way hospitals are run
1: if i'm not you know a big company if i can't run a survey how can i decide what the future is going to look like and what my what it means for my product and my company um where do i look for numbers patterns uh, and advice if i'm not just asking my own gut basically.
0: No, it's a really good question. Look, I mean, looking at China is one thing and you can look at history too and people will say, look, after SARS, this was partly the sort of massive success of Alibaba and others were partly because of some of the things that happened in, in SARS in Asia. Um, so right. I think, but but I think there are, there, there is so much wonderful free insight and information that is available. I, I, I spend uh, still probably too much time on LinkedIn and Twitter and uh-huh. but I think that the key for entrepreneurs, I would say, is invest in your network there. You don't have to, you know, you can follow amazing people on on Twitter and things. And then they will, show, if you follow the right people, it only takes a few hundred, it's not that long to do, you yeah. will find the insights that they are sharing, the debates they're sharing, you know, almost all of these topics that, that we'll be talking about, there'll be some really mm-hmm. good insights there. And equally, you know, sites like Quora, I also think are really interesting uh, for, for early stage entrepreneurs, you know, any thread you're having about like, how much should I pay an advisory board? Or, you know, how do I structure my stock? options, All of these things you'll find really thoughtful people are giving their time on this. But, but for me in terms of absolutely in terms of these, these sort of trends of, you know, remote versus not whatever, I, 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 I do think that you can get a lot out of these platforms.
1: Coming to the very last part of our podcast, which is the fast part, which is the either-or game. Uh, and this is how it works. I give you two words, and you have to choose one and explain real quick why you made that choice. And Great. the first question is obviously bits or pretzels.
0: <laughs> bits. I'm the digital guy.
1: <laughs> Talking or listening?
0: Listening. Still, I still think you learn more when you listen.
1: Follow or lead?
0: Leads, definitely because it's a better way to use creative energy.
1: Dreamer or realist?
0: Dreamer, absolutely. Uh, Funny enough, my daughter just made me do a personality pod, uh, test, which came up with all this stuff. So absolutely, I think if you dream and have no constraints, you can do more exciting things.
1: Chaos or order?
0: 100% chaos. I think you get much more creativity from chaos. I always used to argue that I didn't want to tidy desk policy because I thought... On chaos showed more creative office space.
1: <laughs> conquer or compromise?
0: I still think you have to conquer, and then you can compromise afterwards.
1: Brent, thanks for coming on the Bits and Pieces podcast. Thank you, Brent. All right. That was it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Please let us know how we do and write to us at podcast at Don't miss the next episode of this podcast and subscribe to our media newsletter at bitsandpuzzles.com slash media sign up. Again, that's bitsandpuzzles.com slash media sign up. Stay safe and see you next Wednesday.